0: Welcome to the Lost Books. Angel of Ophelian 6 James enters the second-floor lounge to find Dee in a chair holding her lighter. She stares through its burning flame. Asha, Shen, Eli, Kay, and Nether sit nearby. James notices the artwork covering the entire rear wall. An Apollonian sun around a woman's face and a tree with doves on its branches. James, says "Rule entering the room, since we haven't found the wanderer, we've got to consider other options. And I might have one, he says. If it's a tonic, I'll drink it, says James. If it's a... it's a place says Roll, catching everyone's attention. And it's not that simple. Shen signs something, and Roll nods. The Black Crucible, says Nether. The Black Crucible, says Kay. Roll continues, I believe you may have traumas that are inhibiting you, limiting you. Not only the trauma of losing your memory, but traumas from long before that. Carissa can show us the nature of your trauma and if the crucible offers some possibility of progress. Eli springs up. Wait till you see what Carissa can do. Dee closes her lighter with a click. Do all of you have... Gifts? She asks Kay. There was a time when this place needed... Protectors. Says Nether. The old watch decided to free the most powerful people he could find. He collected them. Says Kay. He thought it was the best way to safeguard the library and its people. But one of them turned on him. James feels an uncomfortable quiet drift over the room. Kay continues. A war broke out. A war that started in this very library. Nether's brother tried to protect the old watch. And the others, adds Eli. And the others, says Kay. But the enemy was too cruel and too strong. When we were young, my brother always protected me, says Nether. Nether's brother was killed by a creature called Loom, says Kay. Loom brings the night, says Nether. Dee feels a cold rush flow through her. They said it was a terrible battle, says Eli, with a beast no one could destroy. Shen signs as Kay speaks. It defeated some of the most powerful beings ever to come out of the Lost Books. Loom wanted to take control of the library. Kay continues, and was able to convince others to join its bloody coup. They threw everything they had at Loom. None of them could stop the beast. It very nearly succeeded, and Nether's brother, as incredibly powerful as he was, stronger than me, says Nether. Shen signs as Kay speaks. Nether's brother died just so Loom could be trapped. It was all they could do to stop it. But why did they turn on the old watch? asks Asha. They were traitors, says Kay. Traitors? says D. If the old man couldn't prevent this revolution from breaking out, if he couldn't keep them safe, isn't he the traitor? No one would have made it to this library in the first place if it weren't for the old watch, says K. And do you think that makes him less or more responsible for those who fell into his care, says D. Carissa glides in wearing a long white robe. James notices the white doves painted on the wall behind her. A beautiful picture, he thinks to himself. Asha turns to Eli. Does this mean you have a gift? She asks. I can become leaves, says Eli. Leaves? Asks Asha. And Shen has his own... Talent. I'm the exception, says Kay. I'm just... Me. And I don't know if I'll ever understand why the old watch helped me. Gave me a new home. A home he even gave to those who would eventually turn on him. He gave them a home too, says Kay. Maybe they still felt like they didn't belong, says D. Maybe they wanted a home where they felt in control. A place no one could take away. A place where they could belong forever. And the only way to do that was to make it their own. No one else can be trusted to give you what you want, or what you need, says D. If the old man couldn't give them the safety that they needed, how can you blame the children for taking it for themselves? Where is this loom now? asks Asha. Trapped in a book, says Carissa. In a lost book that was lost. Can you imagine what would happen if Loom were to get free from wherever the old watch trapped it? Eli shudders. Carissa walks over to James. May I? she asks, gesturing to his shoulder. Okay, answers James. Carissa reaches out and touches James's shoulder. The instant she does, a gleaming human-shaped constellation blossoms before him. Like a great shadow, but of light. It gleams in front of them all. This is a display of all the emotional workings in your body. A projection of the energy flowing, says Carissa, as the others stare in wonder. Carissa and Roll move in close to study the movement of lights. Complex PTSD, just as you thought, says Carissa. But he's in fantastic physical health. Could it work? Asks Roll. Carissa nods. Could what work? Asks James. The group appears amid the dancing portal lights, on a high plain. In a valley below stands a tower in the center of courtyards and training grounds, and surrounding the entire complex, a high wall. The place seems welcoming and imposing at the same time. This, says Roll, is the Black Crucible, a training ground. Martial arts training? For fighters? asks James. Fighters, soldiers, world champions, masters, grandmasters, the greatest of them all are made right here, says Eli. It's a place for all to come for self-mastery, says Roll. Every fighter in this world dreams of training at the Black Crucible, says Eli. Their teachers are legendary warriors, and the Black Crucible is the most grueling training, even brutal training, I've ever seen. We brought a friend here to train, and James interrupts. They got their memory back? No, says Carissa, but they were able to remember things. Important things, James. Maybe you could too, she says. How long would it take, asks James. The shortest training session would be six months, says Roll. Six? I can't be gone for another six months, says James. You wouldn't be gone for six months, says Carissa. We can skip ahead to a later page in the book while you're inside, says Kay. We could make it so that very little time passes out there, says Roll. How long, asks James. Ten or fifteen minutes would pass for us, James. But you would live every second of every minute of every day, says Rol. D Dee steps forward. Is the possibility of finding a few pieces of memory worth that to you? She asks. James considers the question carefully. He looks out at the black crucible. No, he says. Let's just keep looking for my book. Dee flicks her lighter closed with another metallic click. In the library... James reaches the top of the stairs and wearily turns toward his room, eager for a moment's rest, when he hears someone in the second-floor reading room. He enters, and finds D holding a book. "'What are you doing?' he asks, as she opens it and places it on the table. "D," says James. She pulls down the table's heavy metal paperweight to keep the book from closing. James can't help but think, she looks like she's done this before. "'I'm not going with you,' says James.' Dee advances on him, catching him by surprise. He stumbles back against the wall. She leans in and whispers in his ear. I know some part of you wants to go with me. I get the feeling that we could do anything together. You. And me. James smells soft rose and milk chocolate and realizes it's Dee. He breathes in deeply, wanting to hold the scent in his memory. Asha, curious, peers around the corner and sees them. Dee notices then presses her mouth against James's ear. Asha shudders in surprise. I make my own rules, James. Tell me the truth. Do you really want me to stop? Asha, unable to look directly at them any longer, goes. Dee turns all her attention to James. I'm not like anyone else, and I never will be, she says. If you're not coming with me, you better leave. He doesn't, and so... She begins to read. This fruit was the lifeline that made their civilization possible. And in this precious orchard, the dancing lights transport the two of them from where they were to where they are. In front of them is an orchard with great green trees, and pears of gleaming gold are on the branches. Next to them, a sign is posted pick only one. Dee reaches for one of the pears. Be careful, says James. She plucks it and feels a rush. I think this is solid gold, she says, pulling a sack from her jacket and dropping the pear into it. Why do you have a bag? asks James. She reaches up and plucks another. D. The tree withers. It says to pick just one. D, unmoved by the sudden poor condition of the tree, plucks a third pear. The tree withers and dies. You have interrupted my work, a voice sounds behind them. James and Dee spin around to see Thalo Blue, a slender, sleek android of soft grey standing before them. The android is as much a work of artistry as science. The electric life that surges through them glows from their body as they hover, giving off a human kind of warmth. The android's hello is a blink and a nod, and there is a softness in their eyes, something like genuine kindness. And on the upper left of their chest is a registration code written TH eight L U three. Why have you destroyed this tree when you value its fruit? asks Thalo Blue. They have no answer. What they knew they did not want. What they wanted they did not know, says Thalo Blue to himself. I'm so sorry, says James. We're we're new here and my friend got excited. Leave this orchard at once, says Thalo Blue. I'm not ready to leave just yet, says Dee. I'd prefer you not witness the implementation of my battle code parameters, says Thalo Blue. "D, let's go, says James. But D doesn't move. Thalo Blue begins to hum with an energy so powerful that the air around them crackles. All right, maybe I'm ready to leave now, says Dee. I'm truly sorry we damaged this tree. My name is James, he says, reaching out to shake hands with the android. Thalo Blue reduces their energy output and returns to a neutral and less menacing mode. Cause no further damage and be on your way, he says. Then he flies away up the road. Oh, what I would do if I could fly, says James. Come on, T, time to go. They hear the clinking of a metal workshop. Clink, clink. Even James can't contain his curiosity. Another clink, clink and James and Dee follow the sound up the road to a farmhouse and a barn. The clinking stops. The yellow board and batten farmhouse is broad and welcoming, with several windows to several rooms. Dee walks over and looks into a window. The rooms inside are clean and empty. James finds at his feet a large metal plaque set into the road. It reads, The Orchard of the Golden Pear." The clinking starts up again coming from the barn. James and Dee enter to find Thalo Blue working to repair an inactive robot on a work table. Another inactive robot sits against the wall, and this one is the size of a tractor. They are clearly earlier models, older models. You're still here, says Thalo Blue. What are these? asks James. My friends, says Thalo Blue. James notices markings that read TR1N1T4 on the massive robot's shoulder. They had hard lives, says the android. I want so much to make their lives better, he says as he reconnects a wire. But I'm failing. Dee feels a profound curiosity turning within her. What are you? she asks. What am I? says Thalo Blue. That is a reductive question. DC's sees writing etched onto Thalo Blue's chest as well. T-H-8-L-U-3, she reads. No, he says. That was the designation I was assigned, but I have renamed myself Thalo Blue. It's a good name, says James. What happened to your friends? I did, says Thalo Blue. You did, says James. I led them here to the source of the signal, to a place beyond where the path ends. Did you follow the signal too? Did you witness the appearance? I know we are not the only ones who saw it, but Thalo Blue can see by their blank expressions that that they don't know what the android is talking about. Why have you come here? They ask. For the gold, says Dee. Why did you come here? She asks. To find the angel, says the android. The angel? Asks James. You didn't hear the call then? Asks Thalo Blue. Oh, if you could have heard the call. If you'd seen what we saw. If you'd have been in that place. At that time. We traced the angel signal here. To a line we couldn't cross. I think I was meant to lead an army, but I chose to follow an angel, says Thalo Blue. A robot in search of an angel, says Dee. I am not a robot. I am a complex cognitive transputer system. I am an engineer, and my name is Thalo Blue. If you'll excuse me, says the android as they return to repairing their friend, you'll be able to fix them, asks James. It will take time, but I will restore them, says the android, as if they were making a promise. James places his hand on the hand of the smaller robot on the work table. He staggers back. James, are you all right? What happened? Asks Dee. I saw him, says James. I saw some part of him. He's alive. He's he's really alive. Is he? Says James. How did you know that name? Asks Thalo Blue. How were you able to communicate with him? James, feeling overwhelmed, Leans against the table. Thalo Blue, what exactly did you see that brought you here? asks D. A being of light, says Thalo Blue. An angel. Sparks light up Thalo Blue's face as he solders tiny golden wires back together. A being of light that appeared to us for 3.76 seconds. We saw and heard something. Spectacular. Miraculous. Glorious. An angel, says D, mockingly. An unconformity, an exception, a signal, a beacon, a song. An angel calling me and my friends here, says Thelo Blue. Forty-seven hours ago, and outside established procedures, I led my friends 658 meters from our current location, where we found a boundary, a limit to our known world. The four of us tried to cross it, but there are only three of you here, says James. I tried to lead them to the point of the angel's origin, but in trying, my friends were reduced to the inactive state in which they currently reside. You really saw him? asks Thalo Blue. James nods. Dee and I crossed a boundary when we entered this place. Dee steps up close to James. What are you doing? she says. James continues. We crossed a boundary when we came here from our world, and we can show you how to cross it too. Thalo Blue's eyes light up with hope. He turns to his friend on the table and squeezes his hand. I'm going to fix everything, says the android as he stands up. He stops. Silence. Thadal blue turns to James and Dee. Hide, says the android. Hide. Dee pulls James behind a nearby wall with a whirring clang. Two heavy robots, void of humanity, stand in the doorway. Their metal armor looks cold to the touch And just standing as they are, they are imposing. They are built for order. They are made for war. They are Noxmen. TH8LU3 deactivate for return to established parameters. They enter. The voice booms again at Thalo Blue. You must deactivate. And these drudges are to be decommissioned. TH8LU3 says the Noxman. My name is Thalo Blue, replies the android. "'Submit TH-8-LU-3,' says the second Noxman as he approaches. "'My name is Thalo Blue,' replies the android. "'The first Noxman places heavy cuffs on the android's wrists. "'You will be returned to established parameters TH-8-LU-3.' Light glimmers in the eyes of the robot on the table, as if a reconnection has been made. The second Noxman knocks the robot off the table, aiming a rifle at its back. "'My name is Thalo Blue,' he knocks one Noxman into the wall." and I function outside of your established parameters. The android places himself between the remaining Noxman and his friends. The first Noxman launches at Thalo Blue, and the two lock arms. The second Noxman gets up and sees James and Dee hiding. Run, shouts the android, and they do. The second Noxman takes aim at Dee as she flees. No, yells Thalo Blue. He throws one Noxman, crashing into the other sending them both tumbling out of the barn. James and Dee race across the driveway. The first Noxman sits up and sees them. He stands and advances on them rapidly. Dee turns and hits him twice, rattling him, but he counters and strikes her, sending her to the ground. He aims his rifle at her when a blast of light rips through the robot, delivered by Thalo Blue. The android returns to his fight with the second Noxman. A loud snap is heard and the second robot falls. More knoxmen are coming. Says Theloblu. You have to get out of here. He says, flying into the barn. The house. Says D. And they run into the main house. They close the door as several knoxmen land on the road. James and D run toward the back of the house. The orchard's a short sprint away from the back door. Says D. Several more knoxmen land in the backyard. What now? Whispers James. We fight. Says D. No. Says James. We run. The two sprint down the hallway. Dee stops as the Knoxmen close in. I bring the dark, she says to herself. I bring the dark. I bring the dark, she says with growing frustration. What are you doing, says James. The Knoxmen get closer. Where are you, she says to herself. Run, says James. And she does. James and Dee sprint around a corner and see Knoxmen at the opposite end of the hallway. At the midpoint between them is the front door. James feels a jolt of adrenaline. He knows it's going to be close. He and Dee run for the door. The Knoxmen accelerate toward them from the front and close in on them from behind. They can see that the Knoxmen will reach the door before them. James feels a sinking feeling grip him as he runs. We're too late, he says. Suddenly, the center wall blows apart as Thalo Blue rips through it and slams into the approaching robots, allowing James and Dee to escape. Thalo Blue steps out the front door of the house with them, bracing the door closed behind him. The Noxmen rip through it immediately. Thalo Blue, let's go now, calls James. We have to go, shouts Dee. Thalo Blue follows James and Dee to the portal as the Noxmen spill out of the doors at them. The Noxmen launch into flight and soar overhead. Dee disappears into the portal as Noxmen land around it. James turns to the android. Thalo Blue pushes him, and sends him flying backward into the portal. The last thing James sees is Thalo Blue being covered in the arms of the attacking Knoxman. James hits the floor of the library reading room and sees Dee slam the book closed. No, what are you doing? shouts James. What has to be done, she says. James grabs the book and runs to the balcony. Roll, roll! James runs down the stairs. Roll! Roll and Carissa walk out from the study, The others gather along the second-floor balcony to see what all the shouting is about. What's the matter, James? asks Roll. He helped us escape, says James frantically, handing the book to a surprised Roll. Please, Roll, we have to help him. We can't leave him in there alone, says James, as he flips through the pages. We have to go back. He sacrificed himself to save us, says James. Okay, says Roll. Okay, we'll help. We'll help this Thalo Blue, says James. The look in Roll's eyes... Seeing that Roll is genuinely there and listening triggers a wave of relief in James. We'll help him, James, says Roll. I promise. You shouldn't have gone in there without us, says Nether. It was my idea, says Dee. I was going in and I convinced J- James to join me. Well, thank goodness you're both safe, says Carissa. Roll places the book on the front counter. I'll find the best way in and the best way out. Leave it with me, says Roll. Roll. Aren't you going to help him now? says James. You and your new acquaintance have very different perspectives on what now is. We could go in at the very moment you left him, or we could go back and find him earlier, at some point in the story before you entered it, says Roll. The best choice is what is best for him, and I need to figure out what that is. The group disperses, and James notices Roll glance at Asha. Are you still worried about her? asks James. If you are, I can watch after her so that you can help Thalo Blue. You have to stay with her all the time. She can't be alone right now. Can you do that, James? Can you keep her safe? Yes, answers James. Promise me you'll keep her safe, says Roll. I promise, says James. All right, says Roll, as he picks up the book, all the glitters from the counter, and notices how thick it is. This may take a little time, he says.